Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How is fatherhood, dude? It's okay. <laughs> Looking forward to the Weeds parenting spinoff. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by ProPublica's Dara Lind, and we also have Andrew Prokop in for Jane, who is, uh, she went to Australia for whatever reason. She may not survive. It's, she's she's it's upside a down. Where everything is going to kill you. The whirlpools are backwards. Who even knows? Uh, Andrew is uh, one of our top people on the impeachment beat, uh, and one so, of the top people on the impeachment beat. I can yeah. say that objectively because I'm not at Vox. Ah, uh, there you go. Yes, <laughs> you're and totally objective. An objective source. <laughs> Extremely I like objective. I love it. Um, and so you know we're going to talk about this. Uh, there, there is a whole impeachment podcast uh, from the Vox Media Podcast Network, but I thought a, a weedsy thing here is to talk about like. What is the underlying policy dispute that, to some extent at least, has been driving all of this? Uh, Andrew had a—it was not really a viral tweet, but it deserved to be viral—about uh, how, looking back, uh, this the decision-making that happened around the fall of Viktor Yanukovych, uh, Yanukovych? Yanukovych. Yanukovych. Yeah. Quite a while ago. Uh, turns out to have been this, like, incredibly important moment in American politics. And can you just, like, explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, so back in early 2014, uh, Ukraine's president was Viktor Yanukovych. Um, he was notably close to Vladimir Putin of Russia. He was um, in the mix of tensions in the country over whether Ukraine should be closer to Europe, uh, the West, European Union, or closer to Russia. And um, eventually he was forced out of office in February 2014 after major protests, some violence, and he fled the country. And I think when you look back over the five and a half years of American politics since then, uh, this event has um, has cast a remarkably long shadow. You know, this was something that got a fair amount of news coverage at the time in the United States, but we would not have necessarily expected it to lead to multiple major American political scandals and the impeachment, likely, of uh, the United States president five and a half years later. So, I mean, I think it's worth just like 
going back to that time and, and tracing the kind of trajectory of events since then, uh, a, a sort of um, call and response uh, moves and counter moves on both sides. So, you know, Yanukovych fell and in the Russian perspective, this was, he fell because essentially it was a Western plot, the United States, there was a lot of suspicion of him. And uh, in, in the view of the U.S., this was a legitimate popular uprising, and he was a puppet of Putin, and, you know, his people fought back. Which of those, with the benefit of hindsight, would you say is more correct? I think it is very clear that Yanukovych was uh, quite corrupt. Uh, that was the uh, one of the motivations of the protesters. And, um, uh, of course, he, as we'll get into a little later, he was brought to power with the help and political wisdom of Paul Manafort. And, uh, you know, once once the protesters did drive him out of the palace, they saw these just <laughs> uh, massively luxurious conditions and uh, all sorts of um, – you know, it, it became a big issue with the looting of the country. So so there is a, a kind of non-ideological, non-strategic corruption issue that was at play here as well. But what I what I think is important, right, I mean, to understand the Russian perspective on this, mm-hmm. right, is look back. I have to say, it's a CBS News story from December 2013. So this is when the protests are ongoing. And it says, top U.S. official visits protesters in Kiev as Obama administration ups pressure on Ukraine President Yanukovych. And the lead is U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland visited Independence Square in the Ukrainian capital Kiev on Wednesday. The U.S. Embassy said, and an opposition leader said she talked to protesters. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that, like, the protesters were puppets of the United States of America or that the whole thing was fake. But, like, if you want to talk to a Russian about election interference, the U.S. government was, like, in a super clear, like, not subtle, not secret way saying, like, yes, these protesters are correct. The current president of Ukraine, who is pro-Russian, must resign and be replaced by a different pro-European, pro-American president. We had our reasons for that, but it was like a very forceful form of intervention into something that I think a typical American had no interest in, had never thought about, didn't care at all. But the American foreign policy consensus was like very, very, very firm that trying to get Ukraine out of the Russian sphere of influence and more integrated with Europe was like a really important and good thing. Like, you'll see, right, like, there is no American official, State Department official, in Hong Kong right now meeting with the protesters there in an issue where, like, I think the sympathies of Americans are very clear, but, like, the foreign policy decision has been made that, like, we're not going to pick a big fight with China over that. But the Obama administration, which was not probably least hostile to Russia of any group of politicians out there, nonetheless, was like, yeah, like, we're going to do this. Like, we are picking this fight. Right. I mean, I think that the Hong Kong counterexample is illustrative because showing support for the protesters in Hong Kong is the sort of thing that used to be considered by the American foreign policy establishment to, like, be an anodyne, not ideological. Like, of course, we're America. We're always going to side with, you know, pro-democracy protesters. And the fact of the matter is that that is always going to be read by the other side as you are siding with them against us. You are playing a broader strategic game. And it's just that we currently have in office a, you know, 
foreign policy minds who share that understanding, right, who are also playing that kind of great strategic game of the— we understand that there is another superpower kind of on the other side of this. And what we do in this country with these protests right now is going to change our relationship with that superpower in a way that the Obama administration, you know, ignored perhaps to their detriment. Well, I mean, at any rate, the Russians got really mad. Yeah. Yeah. Which and then leads us to in, what happens next. Invaded mm-hmm. the country. Yes. Uh, so the Russians invade. They seize Crimea, which had been part of Ukraine. Still, uh, the U.S. recognizes it as part of Ukraine. But— Uh, The Russians have it and have not seemed to be in a rush to give it back. And uh, then a separatist conflict uh, begins in eastern Ukraine as well with Russian support. So, I mean, this was viewed by the Obama administration as a really big and uh, egregious deal, like um, a move for a great power to seize territory uh, violated post-war norms, and um, they were they were furious about this. And they and relations with Russia just took a total nosedive after that. The U.S. responded by placing uh, some tough sanctions on Russia, and you know that is how this deterioration of relations, this cycle of um, provocation and counter-provocation, really got started, and then led to seems to have played a large role in President Putin deciding that it would be a good idea to meddle with the 2016 U.S. election. And, you know, we can't know, we don't have access to his exact decision-making around this. Uh, there, He had a pre-existing grudge with Hillary Clinton because of some comments she made as Secretary of State before all this. So, you know, maybe he would have intervened anyway. But it does seem that Putin's falling out with the Obama administration and the prospect that Hillary Clinton, who would be even more tough on Russia, was to come in, seems to have probably played the role in uh, the Russian government making the somewhat dramatic decision to uh, intervene in 2016 by hacking and releasing these emails, uh, most famously of leading Democrats. But then we should should talk about U.S. domestic politics, too, right? Because the the context in the United States had been that the Obama administration came in. Um, there was supposed to be a reset with Russia. They really wanted to prioritize diplomacy with Iran. They wanted to get Russia to help with their efforts on Iran. And so they chose to deprioritize some other things uh, that 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 you know, were on the bilateral agenda. Uh, So I remember there was a controversy in Obama's first term about deployment of missile defense systems to Central European NATO allies. Uh, And Obama didn't do it. Right. And he got a lot of criticism from Republicans. Mitt Romney in the 2012 campaign famously said that Russia was our number one strategic adversary. And Obama famously mocked that and said, like, the Cold War is calling and they want their their foreign policy back or something. And Obama famously told then President Medvedev, if I'm reelected, I will have more flexibility to, you know, make some sort of deal or, or be less tough on Russia and so exactly. on. And so, so, right. So the U.S. backing the Euromaidan protesters in Ukraine was a little bit exceptional for the Obama administration, which had generally, relative to American politics, Obama had been 
almost like an outlier on being soft on Russia. But they felt this protest was an opportunity to take a stand for something. Victoria Nuland, the, the assistant secretary of state who was mentioned there, she was one of the more hawkish people in the administration, in the sort of firmament. And then the Obama administration felt that the seizure and annexation of Crimea was so outrageous that it forced them into a Russia hawk paradigm that they had been resisting for their sort of previous five years in office. But even so, congressional Republicans spent 2015 accusing Obama of not doing nearly enough to support Ukraine. They said that the fact that this happened was a manifestation of his weakness earlier in the presidency, that it was a failed appeasement policy that had let him do this, and that Obama this is very relevant to impeachment, was critically not providing Ukraine with lethal... Lethal aid was the term at the time. Yes. And so this was, you know, the the Obama administration was giving them money and supplies, but was not giving them basically uh, things that blow up. And I think it's also important to understand this is that Pretty much everyone's understanding was that Hillary Clinton was more hawkish on foreign policy than Obama was. Again, I mean, we can't, like, detect the future or alternate realities, but, like, that was – that's what people thought, right? That's what people in the United States thought. If you were a minimally competent Russian political intelligence person, you would have relayed back to the Kremlin that that's what everyone in Washington thought. So the the presumption was – overwhelmingly that Obama would be replaced either with a Republican who was more hawkish on Russia or with Hillary Clinton who was more hawkish on Russia. But then along came Donald Trump. Yes, and then this guy named Donald Trump wins the Republican presidential nomination. He has said a few times on the campaign trail, notably said he would revisit the topic of sanctions on Russia. He thinks they're bad for business and um, made notably friendly comments about Putin. And And his campaign manager was a former aide to Yanukovych. Yeah. And, you know, this was a interesting turn of events in uh, March 2016 when uh, Trump was, um, this is after he won a few of the early primary and caucus states. And there were increasing stories in the press about how he was going to have trouble actually locking down the delegates that are necessary to get the nomination at the convention. He was winning the contest, but he needed someone to help him lock down the delegates. So then he ended up hiring Paul Manafort, who was the top American advisor to the deposed Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, and um, Manafort became the Trump campaign chair and held that position all the way through August 2016. And he was forced out in part because of a scandal involving Ukraine that we're still talking about today. He, of course, is currently in prison for various um, financial misdeeds due to um, the work he did for the former Ukrainian government. But what we knew at the time, what came out in August of 2016 is that there was what is known as the Black Ledger, and this was purported to be a series of corrupt payments made by the Yanukovych regime, part of which went to Paul Manafort. 
This seemed to be a sign of corruption. These were large sums of money. And um, shortly after the New York Times reported on this, Manafort was forced out of the Trump campaign. And he may have been on his way out already. Trump was doing very badly in the polls then, and, and they seemed to be ready for a change. But um, but yeah, so, so, so this is yet another effect of, of the long shadow of Ukraine. Manafort is forced out of the Trump campaign in August 2016. The Trump administration has kind of, in minimizing Manafort's role, made it seem like he was brought in for the sole, that he was kind of a role player, right? That he was brought in for the sole purpose of wrangling delegates. And I think it's worth mentioning that, like, at you know, during the Republican National Convention, Manafort had appears to have had a key role in changing the Republican platform to alter its Ukraine plank to be something notice, notably softer on Russia. So it's that did, you know, have an influence in at least what the Republican Party was saying its view of the world was in 2016. They were willing to sacrifice that for the sake of, you know— having the Trump campaign manager happy with everybody. Well, this is this is the exact controversy about lethal aid, actually, at the time. Ha! Because, so this is the 2016 Republican convention. This is in July. And uh, what happened is that a delegate for Ted Cruz, who is anti-Trump, proposed adding a plank to the Republican platform that said that the U.S. should provide lethal aid to Ukraine. Which at the time reflected what congressional Republicans were saying and what the Obama administration was resisting. This was the Republican hawk position. This is the way to criticize Obama as weak. And uh, so this delegate put forward this proposed amendment to the platform. And some Trump people intervened to kill this to make sure it wouldn't happen. And this became one of the key planks in the, um, you know, Trump is a Kremlin cutout or Manafort is a Kremlin cutout. uh, This this is the collusion quid pro quo that never quite got proved, right? Like the story that liberals would have liked Robert Mueller to have brought forward was like clear-cut evidence that Paul Manafort brokered a deal to like get this out of the platform in exchange for advanced access to the WikiLeaks or something, right? Those were like the dots that like one would connect, but then no evidence ever clearly emerged as to what was going on. Yeah, there's a bit in the Mueller report about this in the end, but he basically says, we couldn't really prove any malfeasance or or wrongdoing with this. In parallel, there was like an intervention to get this out of the platform and a Russian pro-Trump effort, and no one was ever able to prove that the two things had anything to do with each other. Yes. So to go back to our uh, chain of events, though— So we have the Russian interference campaign. Um, It is not, I guess, 100% proven that it's uh, Russia at the time in the summer of 2016, but widely believed to be. The DNC had its emails hacked, and they began showing up on WikiLeaks in July, and uh, uh, the DNC hired a company called CrowdStrike that um, reviewed uh, the hack and concluded that this was a, a Russian state effort. And so the next counter response here is that the FBI decides to open a counterintelligence investigation into 
the Trump campaign and whether they had any ties to or involvement in this effort. Initially, this focused on George Papadopoulos, a low-level foreign policy advisor to the campaign who, it turned out, had been telling uh, diplomats from other countries that uh, the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of emails. So that made its way to the FBI, and they decided to open an investigation to see what the heck is up here. And so this eventually became the Mueller investigation, which would, of course, uh, loom over Donald Trump's presidency for its first um, two-plus years. And this investigation also would end up returning to Paul Manafort. And in the end, Mueller did not prove any conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia to interfere with the election, but he did go back over Paul Manafort's finances. They used some uh, aggressive uh, investigatory techniques to, it seemed they were trying to find some leverage over Manafort to get him to maybe tell what he knew, if anything, about what the Trump campaign was really up to in 2016. And he ended up being charged with a plethora of tax, bank fraud, and um, failure to disclose foreign assets and lobbying offenses, all mostly relating to his work for the former Ukrainian regime. So this was kind of for a while, it, it was he was Mueller's biggest fish, and there was a lot of pressure placed on him to try and get him to flip on Trump, which he eventually seemed to have done, but then turned out not to have done. Uh, he struck a plea deal with Mueller eventually, but ended up uh, Mueller ended up concluding his information was still full of lies, and uh, they cut off cooperation. So we've gotten to Manafort, and then while this whole Mueller investigation is unfolding, we also have this effort from Trump's people to create a counter-narrative to investigate the investigators or to debunk, um, you know, a lot of the accusations against Trump or his people. And this leads, once again, back to Ukraine. Uh, There is a focus on the Manafort Black Ledger. Uh, Mueller did not actually use the ledger as evidence in court. So some people around Trump argued that this was uh, proof that that it was fake and that it was released as part of a, a smear campaign from Ukrainians to interfere with the 2016 election, to hurt Donald Trump by embarrassing his campaign manager, Paul Manafort. And we should note that it, it may just be the case that Mueller didn't use the Black Ledger because uh, the the chain of custody of it is unclear. And, you know, when you're arguing these things in court, you want to make sure you have the best evidence and and so on. He won the case. But anyway, yeah. (laughs) Manafort is convicted and uh, he he got a seven-year or so prison sentence. But Trump's people seem to keep wanting to look for evidence that could perhaps be used— either to just discredit the Mueller investigation generally or to serve as a pretext for pardoning Manafort eventually. So there was a look at Ukraine for this Black Ledger stuff. Well, and more broadly, I mean, there's so much in the Trump administration that responds to attacks on them by uh, just doing an I am rubber, you are glue. And, you know, the kind of the effort to kind of pin something on the Ukrainian government for trying to take down Donald Trump 
it seems to have kind of gotten its continued political life because Donald Trump needs something to respond to when Russia is accused of intervening in the election that he won, right? So it, it's turned, it's, I think, become a way to imply that the Ukrainian government in 2016, which, you know, did have some diplomats saying publicly that they were concerned about Donald Trump because of all these things he was saying publicly that made him seem soft on Russia, like, in fact, is such a, it was such a kind of coordinated campaign to target Trump and take him down that either you don't need to worry about Russian interference because who knows what the real answer is or was actually a bigger deal and anything that's said about Russian interference is just trying to distract attention from the real story. Well, it happens on two levels, right? Because one is what, what Andrew was saying, right? There's the Ukraine interfered via the Black Ledger and possibly via having someone from the embassy talk to Chalupa, Alexandria Chalupa. Um, but then there's the the higher level view, which is that it was the Ukrainians all along who did the hacks. Yeah, so, right. so this is the other theory that is talked about. There's like, because well, anyway, just to clarify, one is the like, sort of like equivalence narrative, Right, which right. is like, well, Ukraine did some dirt too. But then the other is the like full-blown conspiracy narrative. Russia mm-hmm. is innocent. That yeah. Russia is innocent and that Ukraine did the hack and that CrowdStrike and the DNC and the deep state have like pinned this whole thing on Russia as part of their effort to get Trump. Yeah, so Trump did not actually mention the Black Ledger in his call with Zelensky or anything about Manafort. What he mentioned instead, uh, in addition to uh, the Biden stuff, which we'll get to later, is uh, uh, he talked about CrowdStrike. He talked about the server that and Ukraine And the wealthy Ukrainian yeah. who supposedly owns CrowdStrike, which to be clear is not the case. Yes, CrowdStrike is an American company. One of its founders is uh, a Russian-American, but— they are not Ukrainian. And uh, the very allegation that Ukraine was the true perpetrator of this hack, which we should be clear, makes no sense. Why would Ukraine be hacking and dumping democratic emails? I guess the idea is to frame Russia and make Russia look bad. But but boy, would that be a, a risky thing to yeah, do that is, that's to a- your uh, major uh, – international patron that you're trying also, to— Also, there's any number of things you could have done if you wanted to frame Russia for them, specifically help Donald Trump get elected and then frame Russia for it is a very galaxy brain way to get Trump. Yes. Yeah, right? definitely. We're going to take like Trump do down any- by doing something that's going to help Trump in the election. And then in the re-election campaign, oh, just you wait. But also, yes, CrowdStrike, not Ukrainian— CrowdStrike's founder, also not Ukrainian. There's no server. The the server that is supposedly in Ukraine, is that just not in Ukraine? It doesn't exist. That's not how email works. Yes, Trump Trump is obsessed with a physical server being somewhere. This is a some sort of mutation of a right-wing talking point. Um, I, I think the gist is that the DNC, once they were hacked, they did not invite the FBI in to say, hey, look at all our systems and uh, and and double check to see if Russia really hacked us. You, you can look at whatever you want. Um, I think for perhaps understandable reasons, they did not want to, uh, you know, because if the FBI sees stuff there that uh, viewed uncharitably on the DNC's uh, systems they might think are crimes, then, uh, then the DNC would get itself into some trouble. But... Um, 
there's no server, and this whole this seems to be Trump didn't outright say it, but this seems to be an effort to um, advance what was actually a theory pushed by Putin and Russia as early as early 2017 that maybe Ukraine was behind this whole thing. Maybe they were the ones who truly interfered and. One funny thing about this that that I've always found amusing is that uh, we we actually have some of the phishing emails that were done uh, that were sent against Clinton campaign staffers like Podesta to to do this hack that uh, Mueller has documented pretty thoroughly were sent by various Russian intelligence officers in this particular unit and so on. So these are designed to look like an email from Google, and they say, someone has your password. Uh, some foreign uh, source uh, is trying to get access to the, your email account. You better change your password, and it's a phony link designed to get you to put in your password so the Russians could steal your password. But what it says in the email is that uh, location, Ukraine. So <laughs> the phishing email itself was, in a sense, designed to uh, frame Ukraine or or make Ukraine look bad uh, in this. Or provide some kind of deniability to the Russians. Yes, anyway. exactly. Um, but so, so, okay, so then Trump becomes president, right? Yes. And importantly— because life starts proceeding on two unrelated tracks. But, like, Democrats are now more hawkish about Russia than they were before the election. And congressional Republicans are still hawkish about Russia. And so Congress finally goes to deliver the lethal aid to Ukraine that Obama had been opposing, that had been in the Republican platform and then out of the platform. And now it finally happens. Right. Yes, and this is passed by overwhelming congressional majorities, and Trump does sign this, uh, but you know he didn't really have much choice in the matter. But the Trump administration registers no—I I mean, just to, just to be clear about this, right? Like, legislation happens all the time in America. Policy disputes happen all the time in America. The Trump administration actually does have something of a track record of either threatening or actually vetoing bills passed by Congress that the— that might jeopardize a relationship with countries the Trump administration likes. Like, they were worried about, you know, they were worried about the impact of some stuff on Saudi Arabia. Currently, a resolution supporting the Hong Kong protests right. and, like, doing like some they, stuff on they, China they, is they, sitting they on the made, president's they desk. They made no effort to dissuade congressional Republicans right. from voting for this. They didn't put out a statement of administration policy against it. Yes. They didn't try to insist on a presidential waiver provision based on the national interest. Like, in the official legislating, this was like Republicans won the election. They now got to do the thing they had long been criticizing Obama for not doing. And Democrats concluded that Obama was wrong. And so, like, we were all just going to go do it. But obviously, Donald Trump, on his personal level, had a different view of this. And and another important bit of context here is that um, this lethal aid for Ukraine, a lot of it uh, these Javelin missiles that were discussed on the call, they ended up being provided by Raytheon. You know, in addition to just supporting this because, you know, Republicans are hawkish, uh, it's also good for particular defense contractors to do this sort of thing. And while Donald Trump does seem to have an instinctive aversion to starting or continuing major 
uh, deployments of ground troops uh, in other countries. It is not does not seem that he has a, a principled objection to selling a bunch of missiles to other countries. So right, you know, loves, this okay. So let, let's take a break, and then then I want to I want to come back after the break and, and talk about the congressional hearings. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. When we get to the hearings, right, one of the things that's on display here is that a lot of people Trump appointed. I mean, Fiona Hill, I think, most clearly uh, among this, but but also Volcker um, and then a number of the, the permanent government employees, right? They were like Russia hawks, people who felt the Obama administration had been too soft on Russia and who, in a sort of normal Republican-y way, uh, were looking forward to taking what had been the, like, post-2014 U.S. crackdown on Russia and, like, further intensifying it. Yeah, so so because of the particular circumstances of this scandal, which is about, uh, partly about Donald Trump trying to block this, um, what ended up being almost $400 million in military aid that was supposed to go to Ukraine— there ended up being a lot of waxing loquacious from the witnesses and from members of Congress about, you know, uh, the the grand, noble importance of 
continuing to deliver this this lethal aid to Ukraine. Although, although the term lethal aid is is not really being used anymore because I guess that sounds bad. They call it security assistance right. uh, now. Well, but uh, right. And, and I mean, I think, you know, important just like comics of viewers at home, it's like the reason this particular thing became like a, like a scandal is that Republicans, by and large, like wanted to give lethal aid to Ukraine, right? So like— it passed Congress. Lots of Trump's appointees supported this policy. And up until the moment when Trump buckled and released the aid, there was this, like, big tug of war around it, right? And it's not that, like, if you're looking from the outside, this is, like, the worst thing Donald Trump has ever done. But it is the thing that Donald Trump did that created the most, like, internal pressure inside his administration because the instinct to— use this aid as leverage against the Ukrainian government just ran contrary to, like, the party policy. Right. And I think the other thing to note here is, you know, we often assume, you know, and and it's broadly true that the president has much more leeway in foreign policy than in domestic policy. But really what that means is the executive branch has more leeway in foreign policy than domestic policy. The president himself as an individual is not— the one doing all of the foreign policying as the Trump administration appears to kind of slowly have kind of accepted, although it hasn't, it's responded by developing what, you know, had famously been called during these hearings, these irregular channels to conduct the president's will through other means. And when you talk about staffing an executive branch on foreign policy, you know, the Trump administration gave itself a very shallow bench to work with by excluding anyone who had expressed you know, who had been a quote-unquote never-Trumper, which took a large part of the Republican foreign policy establishment out of the running because the Republican foreign policy establishment had been much more vocal than other parts of the Republican establishment in opposing Trump even going into the general election. So once you've decided that that is a deal-breaker, there are other axes on which you might want to select people, such as, gee, it's very important to us strategically that we not continue to saber-rattle against Russia that they weren't doing. And, you know, especially as Donald Trump kept burning through top security staff and eventually brought in John Bolton, who he liked because he talked tough, but talked tough because he was tough, it's not that surprising that you'd have people, even in the NSC, which is nominally White House and not Department of State, who would— not necessarily share Donald Trump's particular agenda because as the regional experts and people who were equipped to do their jobs, they agreed with what the foreign policy establishment had believed prior to Trump taking office. And I also think that the way this was done freaked people out because what happened is that in July, a decree came down. It was said to have been coming from Trump communicated through acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney to the Office of Management and Budget. And they told the State Department and Defense Department this, that the aid was going to be blocked uh, due to a review. And there were no details offered. And what happened over the next month and a half or so is is there were various meetings throughout the U.S. government where – uh, state and Defense Department officials tried to get answers of, on, like, what the heck is happening here, and they apparently couldn't get a, a straight answer. And there were recently a set of reports in The Times and The Washington Post about uh, a set of emails that exist that we haven't seen in which uh, 
people under Mulvaney are apparently struggling to come up with some sort of after-the-fact rationale to explain why this was being done and why it was even legal. And so— You know, there was a lot of confusion. Several Republican senators were wondering, hey, what the heck is going on here? The Trump administration was not giving any explanation that made sense to anyone, either externally or internally. When the news finally broke in late August, the Ukrainians started to freak out about it. And uh, there seems to have been an intensification of this pressure from people like Gordon Sondland, who told them, hey, you know, if you want this aid, you got to do these investigations that Trump wants until eventually Trump did back off. On uh, September 11th, the aid ended up being released. But Trump backed off right as the whistleblower's memo was coming to light. Yeah, there are, it is not clear why. I I don't think that Trump backed off. There are a lot of circumstantial things that happened in the days before he made this decision. The whistleblower complaint, what happened at this point is that the whistleblower complaint had been in the system for a while, but the inspector general for the intelligence community had just on September 9th told Adam Schiff that it existed. Adam Schiff seemed to know what was up because one of his staffers had talked to the whistleblower, it turns out, and he announced on that same day that he was going to investigate Rudy Giuliani's influence on Ukraine policy. Then there was also on that same day, September 9th, uh, the famous text from diplomat Bill Taylor to Gordon Sondland saying, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to link security assistance for help with a political campaign. And meanwhile, on September 10th, John Bolton either resigned or was fired from the White House, depending on who you ask. And there were these Republican senators who kept coming to the White House saying, come on, you got to release this aid. So all this was sort of happening at once. And it seemed like I said before that Trump backed off, but another possibility that has been proposed is that uh, he didn't back off. He thought he got his deal. He got a commitment from the Ukrainians that Zelensky, the president, was going to announce these investigations in an interview with CNN. There's a fair amount of documentation suggesting that was the case and that even after the aid was released, the Ukrainians still intended on going through with this announcement to make good on what they thought was a deal with Trump. And so this is what I think is is important. I mean, the reason I think this whole backstory is important, because if you want to understand what Republicans are doing here. I think you have to understand that there are two different critiques of what Trump was up to. There's, I mean, one view of the world is that, like, Trump can do no wrong. I think that's like Jim Jordan. But there are two distinct critiques that are up there. One, which I think you heard from a lot of the witnesses that that were called in the hearings, is that Trump was violating America's sacred duty to Ukraine. Right, that he was endangering people by holding up this aid. That it is profoundly in America's interest to defend Ukraine, like 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 all that. Right, that's one critique of Trump. The other critique of Trump is that it is inappropriate to be trying to gin up bogus investigations on Hunter Biden. Right now, Trump was clearly doing both of those things. But if you listen to um, like Elise Stefanik or a lot of the other Republicans out there. They really pound the table on the fact that, like, at the end of the day, the aid has been delivered, right? So if your problem with Trump is that he was jeopardizing Ukraine, well, he isn't doing that now, 
right? And Obama wasn't delivering this lethal aid. And so it may have been bad that Trump was holding the aid up in July and August, and the Republican senators who were calling Trump and being like, hey, release the aid, and guys like Volcker who were like trying to get the aid to flow, they were all doing the right thing, but fundamentally, Trump at the end of the day did the right thing. And the system, like the system of managing Trump, in some sense worked, right? And to do an impeachment over this is like horrible and outrageous because like, what's the big deal, guys? And you know, Democrats have just been trying to impeach Trump from day one and blah, 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 blah. But if your concern with Trump is that he was trying to gin up bogus investigations of Hunter Biden, then it looks like all that happened here is he got caught. And having been caught, he kind of backed away from it. And he hasn't even really backed away from it. And now Lindsey Graham has announced that right. he's going to right. And now, and now it looks like they're the gonna, they're, they're going to put Hunter Biden on trial as it as it goes to the Senate trial. And the basic issue for Republicans, you know, whenever you said you're just like, how could Republicans a good conscious blah blah? It's well, you know, Republicans care about public policy, and they were genuinely pushing back on Trump when the aid was being held up. But they want Republicans to do well in elections, so like they're not going to go to bat for Hunter Biden's honor and dignity, and the issue has become sort of moot. And I do think we would be talking about a very different dynamic on Capitol Hill. If Trump was just refusing to release the aid money, that, I think, would have cost him tons of allies on the Hill. But if you want to understand why he has uniform support for Republicans, it's that on the thing that caused this to be the subject of disagreement, he has backed down. Right. I mean, I think the other related thing here is that Congress puts conditions into aid legislation that gives the executive branch, like, an escape valve often. Like, in this case, the State Department had to, cert you know, had to engage in certain, like, yeah. certifications in order to get the aid released. That happened before the hold was placed on the aid. But the existence of that certification clause has been used by Republicans to say, look, even though, yes, Congress has a role in determining what kinds of aid various countries get, ultimately foreign policy is the prerogative of the executive. So it's okay that Donald Trump, who's the head of the executive branch made these decisions. And that kind of arrogation of power to the executive branch isn't that uncommon for Congress in, like, the 21st century generally when they have the, you know, when their party has the White House. But I think it also would be very different if there were this ongoing conflict in which things that the legislative branch had duly appropriated were not being released by the executive, as opposed to Republican legislators appear to have made the calculus that, yeah, this didn't happen according to the process that got set down in legislative text, but Republican legislators ultimately got the president to do the right thing. So clearly, in some sense, the separation of powers there is working just fine. But the flip side is that, to me, this is exactly what shows how corrupt it was, right? That, like, it would be one thing for Trump to have a principled objection to delivering this aid to Ukraine, which I think is totally reasonable. I thought Obama's view of this was reasonable. I think if Obama did anything wrong, it was by sending Newland over there in the first place and making such a big deal out of Ukrainian domestic politics for the United States. I, I would be I would be all here for like uh, dovish appeasement of, of the Russian government. But it's precisely the fact that Trump, he wanted to hold it up, but not because he didn't want to deliver the aid, but like just because he wanted this investigation into Hunter Biden. Either when he thought he could get the investigation or just when he thought like 
he'd been caught in an embarrassing way. He's like, here, have the javelins, right? Like, he's not doing any real foreign policy around this. He's just derailing the policymaking process to smear his domestic political enemies. And with the CrowdStrike thing, which they didn't talk about as much, just like endlessly muddy the waters as to like who committed actual crimes back in 2016, which I think is really, uh, it's really bad. It's, it's wrong. Seems bad. But I mean, should we talk about where things are now with the impeachment inquiry? Yeah, and, what's uh, up? Okay, so we're done with it seems, with the public hearings in the House Intelligence Committee. And um, and so one thing that's interesting that I, I hope to talk about here is, is um, that Democrats appear to be moving on and they want, they really want to have this vote on impeachment before the end of the year. So rather than continuing this investigation, rather than making more of an effort to get other witnesses that we haven't heard from yet or to get other evidence or to just, you know, um, keep the timetable open, we are hurtling toward this vote in um, probably late December and um, to impeach Trump and then he will probably go on trial before the Senate in January and then get acquitted and this thing will be all done with. So, I mean, what I think is interesting here is um, is the assumption among Democratic leaders that they really want this thing to be over with early next year. They do not want this hanging over their heads late into 2020. And um, to what extent has that actually been like so something that they've is that something that they've reconsidered but been confirmed in by looking at how the impeachment process has played out? Or is that just Nancy Pelosi made a calculation before impeachment was ever started that dragging impeachment into 2020 would be bad for Democrats and nothing that could possibly happen between now between then and now could have changed anyone's mind? What I think is helpful. I, I think it's it's useful to think about what is the purpose of this impeachment inquiry? Because, um, you know, what resistance people on Twitter think the purpose is may be different from what Democratic leaders think the purpose is. I mean, I can come up with uh, several different possibilities for, for why they are doing this in the first place. One would be to try to find the facts of this scandal, to try to learn more information, investigate this wrongdoing, and, and get more info on what actually happened. And they have done a surprisingly good job on this already, but there are still major gaps in the factual record that could be served by a continued investigation. Uh, I think the second possible objective would be to, you know, defend the rule of law by um, this. This is what the kind of um, good government rule of law people uh, tend to argue that Trump tried to interfere in the 2020 election. And, and if we just let this stand while doing nothing uh, without impeaching him, then then he gets away with it. And, and that's terrible. And, you know, I think the drawback is here is, well, if he gets acquitted and then perhaps reelected, uh, doesn't that also mean he got away with it? But anyway, you, you can theoretically impeach just to stand up for the rule of law to make a, a case on the ethics that Trump did something wrong. I think the third would be to actually try to remove Trump from office. This seems incredibly unlikely, but it, it's at least, you know, theoretically possible that you could want an impeachment inquiry uh, in the hopes of even a small chance that 
the earthquake happens politically and, and that Trump gets removed. But I don't think that Nancy Pelosi um, thinks that that is a, a plausible outcome. I think the fourth purpose of the inquiry would be to just do political damage to Trump. Like, uh, you know, the purpose of this is just to to hurt Trump politically and, and make it less likely that he would win in 2020, in part by unearthing new information, in part by holding these hearings and so on. And I think uh, one of the drawbacks to this potentially is that um, the hearings so far have not really seemed to uh, hurt Trump's position that much. Uh, we, we have not seen a groundswell of support for impeachment since the hearings began. The other drawback is that impeachment could be both bad for Trump politically and also bad for moderate Democrats in Trump-supporting districts politically. It puts them in an awkward position, and uh, those are the Democrats who Pelosi's majority depends on. And so finally, uh, to get to the heart of what I think may really be going on here, the fifth possible objective for an impeachment inquiry would be to just kind of dispense with this never-ending demand from the Democratic base to impeach Trump. Like, they just want to check the box and get it over with. They know it'll fail. They don't think it's a political winner. You know, they found some facts, but they're they're not particularly interested in waiting it out months and months to get more facts. And, you know, they think the outcome is clear at this point. Republicans are standing by Trump in the House. Uh, everyone except Romney so far has been standing by him in the Senate. And so, you know, from their perspective, Pelosi thinks that she's been dealing with this demand for Trump's impeachment all year. Her members have been in an awkward position often. And so let's just get it over with and then try to move on to other issues that her members prefer to focus on. Right. And to me, I mean, I think the question about the the wisdom of all of this, right, it really hinges on, you know, how do you interpret, like, is this hurting Trump? Politically, right? Because on the one hand, it's clearly not like devastating him politically. And it's clear that there are some other issues that Democrats believe would be better for them. And the question is, do they really have a means to pivot to those issues, right? Like, I think obviously if Democrats could have generated multiple days of all-day news coverage of hearings about prescription drug pricing, like that would be their preference, But the question is, like, can—obviously, they can't do that. But it's like, when they get the impeachment monkey off their backs, are they going to be delivering this, like, steady message on pocketbook issues that they want to be delivering, uh, or are they not? Because my recollection of the politics of several months ago is that there was a lot of um, talk from Democrats about how they would like that to be the case. But in practice, they were just kind of getting yanked around by the news cycle. You know, so it'd be like one day there would be an outrage at the border. One day Trump would tweet something crazy. One day a member of the squad would say something inflammatory that got them a lot of retweets from their supporters. And it was like a constant churn of like, uh, when are we going to focus on our pocketbook issues? And then one reason they couldn't focus on their pocketbook issues, though, is that then whenever legislation would come up, it's like, okay, we're going to do the minimum wage. Okay, we're going to do prescription drug pricing. The very same vulnerable Democrats who supposedly wanted to focus on those topics also had lots of like fussy policy concerns about all those initiatives. To an extent, this brief impeachment window has like brought peace to the land. 
because it's given everyone in the Democratic caucus like something they can they can do. And once it's done, they're going to be back to fighting with each other, I think, rather than back to what it is the frontline members want to be back to. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental lesson that the Trump operation learned in 2016 and is implementing again in 2020, and this is something we've brought up on the podcast before, it's something that I probably ultimately stole from Matt, is that having a candidate who has the specter of investigations and something is going wrong here hanging over them can depress that candidate's ability to win over swing voters and to turn out their own base. That's the lesson of the kind of just associating Hillary Clinton with emails through continued leaks, through the you know, investigation, closure of the investigation, reopening of the investigation. And it's the playbook that they're running in 2020 with Joe Biden, you know, both through trying to get other governments to engage in investigations of the Bidens and now using the Senate. It's worth noting, by the way, that like, despite Donald Trump controlling nominally the Department of Justice, this has not turned into William Barr coming out and saying, we are now investigating the Bidens, although it wouldn't surprise me if that was an ask that was made at some point. Instead, they've had to do this bank shot where the where Barr has ordered an investigation of the circumstances under which the investigation into Russian interference in 2016 started so that there can be some kind of ongoing investigation that won't probably won't reveal anything super huge, but that will serve to undermine the idea that we really know anything and can pin anyone for wrongdoing. It seemed for a minute like the Democrats had learned that lesson and were going to turn the playbook back on Trump by saying, okay, the Mueller investigation is finally closed. We're now going to start this impeachment investigation. You know, this is, we're going to make sure that Donald Trump, no matter where he goes, has some kind of threat of investigation hanging over him in the minds of voters. That doesn't appear to be the playbook they're running. So the question is, Is it going to be sufficient for them to have said, well, he's already been impeached in terms of kind of sullying him symbolically? Or is the Trump administration going to succeed in making Joe Biden look dirtier than Donald Trump does just by having this out there? But but I think this is this is where, again, the map of the House of Representatives is so important to keep in mind because. Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2016 to Hillary Clinton by two percentage points, yet there are significantly more House of Representatives districts that uh, where more voters voted for Trump than Clinton. And so just mathematically, Nancy Pelosi needs a bunch of those Trump-supporting districts to continue to be Speaker of the House, to continue to have a majority. And that that skew of the map is often what I think is driving her decision-making when, um, you know, her critics on Twitter or so on are like, why aren't you doing this thing that seems so obvious and good and true and right to us? Is she is trying to protect those members who represent districts where Trump is still popular, who feel uncomfortable and awkward when their differences with Trump are elevated rather than uh, when they have to be put in this position of saying Trump is bad because then they, you know, we saw a story in Politico recently about squeamishness among moderate Democrats about anti-impeachment ads that are now being run in their districts by Trump supporters. Like this is this is not a comfortable position for them to be in. Uh, I think 
this isn't about the House, but if there was a recent op-ed from Andy Bashir and John Bell Edwards, two Democrats who just won uh, gubernatorial elections in Kentucky and Louisiana about the path to victory. And in their view, it's to focus on jobs, education, and healthcare again and again and again, just focus on kitchen table issues. And I think this is what a lot of these moderate Democrats did focus on in their own races, if you actually look at the ads that they ran. But can they run it as a national message when they're up against Donald Trump, when there's a Democratic presidential nominee who's yet to be chosen, who may be more controversial on some of those issues? Um, And I mean, I just think the big question in this is like, do they have a – I think they clearly have a desired strategy, right? And the question is like, do they have a plan to actually do that? Right. Because what we're we're talking about is like earned media. Like what is the – I think there's very widespread agreement that if you are in a Trump to Democrat 2018 district and you are looking at your advertising budget, right, that like your dollars should go to ads that are about your moderate healthcare and education and job creation policies, right? And then it's clear also that their hope, their aspiration is that the national political dialogue will also be on those topics. But what my question to them always is, is like, other than ending the impeachment inquiry quickly, like, what is the agenda that causes that to be the case? Like, the thing Andy Bashir and John Bell Edwards had going for them was like actual live political controversy about Medicaid. Right. Not just like talking about it, but there was like a real thing. And and a lot of spade work went into it. And I think this is where. And it was the repeal of Obamacare effort that right. a lot of these Democrats ran. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so it's like, what do they want to want to do? Um, OK, well, we should take a break. We've gone on a long time about this. Uh, talk about this. Talk about this white paper. This week's white paper is from the journal SSM Population Health. It is called Growing Sense of Social Status Threat and Concomitant Deaths of Despair Among Whites. And it's by a collection of authors, Arjuman Siddiqui, Odma Saud Ordene, Derek Hamilton, Tracy McMillan Cottom, and William Darity Jr. Some of those names may be familiar to uh, either like people who are public policy nerds. Hamilton and Darity were both kind of among the intellectual progenitors of the case for reparations for black Americans. Tracy McMillan Cottom is now a kind of popular public intellectual in her own right. Uh, The problem that these authors are trying to solve is that there's been a lot of attention over the last few years to a rise in mortality among white Americans, particularly middle-aged white Americans. There was a seminal paper on this in 2015. Uh, There's been a continued discussion because, like, you don't generally see rises in mortality uh, in the absence of, like, war or famine or some other kind of shock to the system. So just the fact that there are people who are not doing as well in America as other people doesn't explain an, a rise in absolute mortality levels. The problem that these authors are trying to solve here is anything you can say about what's happened to white people over the last two decades can also be said about black Americans. And yet, while absolute mortality rates for black Americans are still much, much higher than they are for white Americans, you don't see that rise in mortality over time that you see with white Americans. So they're 
trying to answer the question of what exactly is it that has made white people subject to higher mortality than they used to be that hasn't affected black America. And the way that they're trying to address this is by saying, okay, well, having looked at and kind of ruled out or, you know, in their view, ruled out some of the economic explanations because they could apply just as easily to black America as to white America, let's look at the idea that what's happening is a relative loss of social status, that that is kind of leading to a higher level of stress among white Americans, that it's making them more susceptible to what are called deaths of despair, which have been a common explanation for this difference in mortality, that what's really happening are drug overdoses, suicide, other deaths that, you know, can be attributed to a higher incidence of stress and depression and just kind of general helplessness. The way that they go about this is by—because there is no instrument you can use to measure, okay, do you feel like you have lost social status relative to other people in America? So what they end up doing is controlling for a ton of socioeconomic variables and then looking, having controlled all those variables in shift in Republican vote share from 2000 to 2016 on the argument that because the Trump candidacy made racial resentment such a— pillar of its pitch to voters and on the basis of all of the literature that's come out showing that, you know, in contrast to the economic anxiety thesis, racial er, racial resentment really was what drove a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. They're going, okay, fine, let's just look at whether you can explain the shift toward Republicans in places that had higher mortality as the century has gone on by taking all of these economic circumstances out of the question. And therefore, if people are shifting to Republicans, not because they're making less money than they used to be, not because, you know, fewer of their people are educated, but just for their own sake, we can hypothesize that what's happening here is a link between loss of social status and rising despair and mortality. And they find that correlation for sure. It's not they can't draw a causal arrow there. It's They're pretty honest about this in the paper that just because you can identify an association between shift toward Republicans and higher mortality, you can't necessarily prove that one of those causes the other. But it's still an interesting—I think in some ways the journey here is more important than the destination because, for one thing, it really is a substantial challenge to some of the deaths of despair narrative to say, okay— Nothing you're saying here is not also true for people who aren't white, and yet they haven't had the same relative change in mortality rates. And also some of the particular findings they have, like the weakest association in the counties that they're looking at was between a change in income and the rise in mortality, which really kind of goes to the heart of the idea that what's happening is people are worse off and therefore their health is worse. But but just to be really clear on what— The theory here behind the paper is that perceived loss of racial status is behind deaths of despair. But the actual measurement offered by the paper is that deaths of despair are linked to increased Republican vote share from 2000 to 2016. And, you know, it is— this is just what the measurement is. This paper, it, yeah, it's like a snake eating its own tail. If you posit that that vote, you have this deaths of despair narrative, and you have this Trump voting narrative, and we, the original introduction of the deaths of despair narrative was like, aha, this explains why these people are voting for Trump. 
they're having all this despair, which you can see in the rising rates of alcohol abuse and, and all these other things. And now they're turning it back around and they're being like, no, 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 no. You can see these people are having their lives all fucked up because they're racist Trump voters. What, what is clear as far as everybody looks at this is that there is no economic basis for feeling that non-college whites are worse off than non-college African-Americans. Right. I will be interested to see, like, Case and Deaton are turning their Deaths of Despair uh, paper slash slogan into an actual book uh, in which I hope they will address this point because it's sort of the glaring thing that hangs above this whole element. But, like, I just – I feel like they didn't even – in this paper, they didn't even try to measure – like, racial status threat. Well, it's, I mean, it really is hard, right? Like, there are some survey measures that they get to, but frankly, like, I don't know that we would find, I, the kind of common measures of racial threat are kind of just sentiment being expressed toward people of other groups in a vacuum, in a survey context. And it can be really, I think, hard to figure out to what extent is that just something you're going to tell a survey researcher versus to what extent is that something you're actually, like, more aware of as you live your life. And so I, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that Republican vote share change is, like, the perfect way to capture this. But I think, and I I don't think it can be understated that they really are, like, at this point, there's an absolutely extensive academic literature. If you wanted, you know, if you are trying to say voting for Trump was driven by racial resentment. You have a library of citations you can point to at at this point. Um, But, you know, they're really, the other thing that they're trying to capture here is something that I think I think I was thinking and talking about a lot in 2016, which is that a lot of kind of people who who study inequality understand that in a in an individual lived experience kind of way, relative inequality matters a whole lot more than are you doing better now than you than you know your ancestors were in terms of like how you feel about your position in life. And they absolutely do show here that whites, especially whites with kind of some college or no college, see their relative social class as much lower in 2016 than they did in 2000 uh, in a way that isn't necessarily true for non-white Americans. So, like, it's, you know, there's there's a question here of whether, whether or not this is about racial threat per se. If there is a group of people who do not feel that they are succeeding in life, and part of the reason they do not feel they are succeeding in life is because they are looking around and other groups are making advances and their group is not making advances in the same way because that's how relative inequality works. Isn't that, isn't it logical to suspect that that's going to have an effect on like individual trajectories? And how does that look? And also how do you address it as a public health concern if the public health concern is grounded in this pathway of like perceived loss of social status leads to stress, leads to higher rates of hypertension, leads to higher risk of heart attack. And and the deaths of despair, we should say, are a lot of them are linked to alcohol abuse. A lot of them are linked to opioid abuse. A lot of them are suicides, and then there are also various uh, measurements of, of morbidity, various um, you know health metrics that have declined among uh, whites in this certain age group. So I think what the paper, like the traditional explanation of this, or the one that was popular when this was put forward, is that 
the economic circumstances of these groups are driving these poor health outcomes and are driving these deaths of despair. And a lot of people have picked that apart. So now um, this paper proposes that perhaps the perceived loss of racial status is behind these poor health outcomes, opioids, alcohol, et cetera, uh, and therefore deaths of despair. And also mixed up in there is they vote more for Trump along the way. But of course, there are various other ways to interpret those linkages. I, I mean, for instance, you know, deaths of despair could make a community more suspicious of outgroups and more likely to vote for Trump. Like that that's just one obvious way to reverse the causal arrow. And and they say in, in their paper that, you know, their their data was not structured in such a way where where there was a, a lag where they could really trace which one was causing the other. I think the one thing you have to understand whenever you're looking at like Trump voting and race as a as a subject of interest is that there are political parties throughout the West, right, which are – have a vaguely Trumpy profile, right? Strong anti-immigrant, dispute climate change consensus, some kind of affection for or ties to the Russian government, some suggestion of being softer on traditional free market type policies. And they are growing in their constituency in all kinds of countries, and it is always with a base of older, non-college-educated, domestic stock uh, people. And therefore, any kind of accounts that are, like, specific to America are probably not what's really going on here. And the striking thing about the deaths of despair is that they are unique to America, right? So, like, there is no deaths of despair trend in Italy, uh, which actually has probably the strongest and most electorally successful, like, far-right populist movement. And I'm very happy to believe that it's, like, racial anxieties and status threat that are driving both Trump and Salvini. Uh, but, like, there's all these people uh, dying of opioid overdoses in the United States, and they're not in Italy. And I think that's, like, pretty clearly because of different opioid policies, right? And when you look at, at a lot of the discussion here seems targeted at cardiovascular disease and right. diabetes. Not actually but those the, are the by far the smallest drivers of this. And so, like, at the end of the day, I mean, I've just always hated the phrase deaths of despair. Like, I think the implication that people wake up one day and they're feeling sad or despairing for some reason, be it economic or racial or whatever, and then they go get addicted to heroin, that's, like, crazy. That's not— that violates everything we know about drug abuse patterns and the etiology of it and the spread and, like, how these addictions took off. And, like, I don't know. I, I, think, I think everyone's got to pump the brakes on despair. I generally think it's a useful corrective to materialism to acknowledge that the way that people view the world is going to structure their life outcomes. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that this is this we're going to continue to have this debate for a long time, at least until such point as white mortality trends reverse themselves. And then people will go back to not caring about absolute differences in racial mortality. All right. <laughs> so before they kick us out, uh, thanks, Andrew, uh, for joining us today. Uh, avoid despair in your personal life by connecting with your friends and family by sharing your love of the weeds. Uh, of course, a great way to build social and psychological resilience. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, uh, our, our engineer, and Jackson Bierfeldt, uh, our producer. And The Weeds will be back on Friday. Happy Thanksgiving.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.